Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107, and joining me, the man who always has his go bag packed and ready to go, it's Ryan Ireland. How you doing, Ryan? Hey, Andrew. Doing good. You know, funny thing is... I did have to use some of my emergency supplies the other day. Why don't you, real quick, just let everyone know what we're talking about here, okay? Because people may not know. (laughs) Well, Andrew has this fantasy that I'm like a prepper, which is not true. No, no, it's not a fantasy. You have a go bag. We have seen pictures of it, and it is packed with currency in in a bunch of different denominations and with a whole bunch of other stuff so that you can just grab and go if you need to, right? I think there's a firearm in there, too, like a Walther PPK or something. (laughs) You are just making stuff up. I have... a safe that is the suitcase style safes. A go bag, yes. That has like, you know, important documents like passports. Money. Maybe some cash. Yes. Important documents. Ryan, if it contains passports and money, it's a go bag. It's portable. It contains passports and money. Just deal with it. It's a go bag. That's what it is. So after... Uh, in, back in February here in Austin or in Texas, we had that winter storm and people lost power for like a week and all sorts of people lost water here in Austin. And so I ended up buying in the aftermath a generator and longer term water storage. And not because I'm a prepper, but because I, you know, live through. That sounds a whole lot like a prepper. Anyway, <laughs> yes. So you have a huge anyway, cistern on the roof of your house now that's collecting rain. No, I mean, yeah. we have rain barrels just for collecting rainwater from gutters, but we also have have 21 gallons of drinking water in these long-term storage containers. Ryan, is that a normal thing for people in suburban Austin (laughs) to have rain barrels? And then I also bought a generator. And then the other morning, we had a pretty wicked but short thunderstorm come through with some straight winds that knocked out power to like 11 houses, five houses on my side of the street, and then five or six houses on the street behind us. And we all share a common power line. It kind of runs between the houses in the backyards. So I I fired up after a couple hours, I fired up the generator, plugged in the fridge, just got critical stuff going. And that thing ran all day. 12 hours, we were out of power. And you felt justified and you felt happy that you made that it, purchase. I was right? like, I am so glad I spent this $700 right. on this generator. And I Absolutely. feel like you have the same mentality regarding your go bag. I feel like you're just dying for the opportunity where you're just like, oh, it's time. And you grab it and go. I mean, I, th- I think I'm not like, a, I'm not a dooms a doomsday or I'm not a prepper, but I do think that you need to be prepared for the comforts of modern life to disappear for longer than just a few hours sometimes. And having a generator, that's pretty normal. Everybody has a generator. You have a generator, Andrew. Come on. I do have a whole home generator. I live yeah. kind of in a rural area, though, where it's not, especially in the winters that we have up here, mm-hmm. it's not unusual for power to go out occasionally. I do have a whole home generator, but I think that's a different level, Ryan. Oh. I don't, I don't have any rain barrels around my house. Well, I don't have just... no go bag. I don't have any of this stuff. <laughs> All right. This wasn't on our topic list for this this show. Right. So for anyone this? who doesn't know, Ryan Ireland runs craftquest.io, which is a video training site. And it's also a software as a service that he runs for his living and everything. And mm-hmm. Ryan, my understanding is that you have a little bit of a, a rant related to <laughs> your SaaS so, that you want to get in and talk about. Yeah. And also just some things that I've been reflecting on. So I use a, I'm not going to name the company 
but I use an email marketing slash chat tool for the site. And I have some integration that I wrote. There's a, I wrote a craft plugin that basically sends, like when somebody creates a subscription, it adds them to that system with the information about their subscription. That way I'm smart. If I email people, I email them based on real information, whether they're a premium subscriber or a free subscriber or they're a trial user, so forth. So I decided that I wanted to move email tools for all sorts of reasons. And the first step in that is evaluating, okay, I need to get my data out. And then what I real and, and one of the most important things to do, I'm not sure if you've done this, Andrew, when you migrate an email list out of one tool into another is that you bring with it the subscription status of each contact. Have they ever unsubscribed from your list? Because you sure. don't, you absolutely do not want to automatically resubscribe them or accidentally email them again. Wait, does this have anything to do with the spam I've been receiving from you lately? Is it related to that? You mean, my well-written and carefully sent emails about things I've created? Yes, you're a spam. Is it related to that? Is this, it did some kind of malfunction? You I, have a, a wardrobe I, malfunction? I re no. I re no, but I reject, I reject your description. So I did an export of my data and I saw, I was like, oh, there's no subscription status in this data. That's not, I mean, and I've moved tools before. And so I, I, I contact the company. I said, hey, how can I get the subscription status from your tool? I need it in the, the default export. They say, sorry, we don't include it. And this is where things started to go wrong for me. They said, we don't include it because, and then their reasoning, I didn't feel like was truthful. I felt like it was a, I don't want to say a lie, but a, a reason that didn't make sense. So they said, because it's a security issue, because if you know their status in bulk, that you could somehow then resubscribe them to your list or something. It didn't make sense. So it, immediately my BS detector went off. And I was like, this sounds like someone just trying to say, from a technology standpoint, we didn't build this in. It's not part of the export. And so we're just going to give you some reason that doesn't make sense. So I pushed back and I said, well, that isn't, I've used other tools. Exporting the subscription status is standard protocol. And in fact, you're actually <laughs> causing or, or creating a dangerous situation because you are now allowing someone to export their data from your tool and import it into another tool and then actually automatically resubscribe everyone to your list, right? Because the, the way these lists work is you don't, when somebody unsubscribes, they don't delete their contact unless it's a, whatever the EU thing is, you know, where they request that you actually remove their data. Yeah, the GDPR. So you're telling me that the dump that you get from this tool that shall not be named apparently, because <laughs> you're not interested in public safety. No, I don't want to shame anyone. But you're saying that the export that you're getting contains everything. It contains every single email address that is in your list. Right, whether they've unsubscribed or not. Now there okay, is- their, their reason is bullshit. And it, you know, maybe it's part of their retention tool in, in, well, in order to try and get you to not switch. Right, so I just said, it feels like lock-in because now your default bulk. Now pretend that I'm Marley marketing or Mark marketing and I'm not technical and I can't write code. So now you actually are, you're basically locked in because you can't get the subscription status out. So what they, so I kind of pushed back and I said, you know what, I, I've never heard of that rationale before for not including the subscription data. It sounds ridiculous. It's not a security issue. And I told them, I said, I said, I think you're going to actually cause more people to resubscribe customers accidentally. And, and via, in some countries violate the law, um, technically yeah. probably in the US as well through can spam. I'm not sure if it's, if it's a legal violation or not. Anyway, at the very least, it's a moral and ethical violation to do that to people. So they finally, I, I gotten started talking instead of to a support person talking to an engineer on the team and one well, of them hold on, hold on hold on hold on uh -huh. ryan ryan yes sir did you say i'd like to speak to the manager is that are those <laughs> oh. words that came out of your no. mouth in this no, discussion no, no and I, no not at all and i was okay. i was really right. kind because i really 
it doesn't help. I want to get my data out and move to a different service. It doesn't help me if I'm mean to them, right? It doesn't. Yeah. And just a note to everyone out there, whether it's someone working a cash register or someone answering the phones, it never helps to berate people that no. are on the front lines of support because they don't have the power to do anything anyway. Like you're, you're just harassing somebody in addition to being a jerk. Exactly. So so I just tried to be as nice as possible, but I was frustrated because I, I was trying to get my data out in a way that's useful and responsible. So one engineer that I chatted with finally said, well, we don't really see this as being shady. You know, there's also, there's technical bottlenecks for us to do that. Come on. They said the, the subscription status, whether someone's subscribed or unsubscribed, is stored essentially in a different place than the normal contact data, which to me basically is, is actually okay. That didn't make me mad. What made me mad was that they tried to make it be about something else. What they could have said is there's some technical limitations to how we have these normal exports work. It does work in that way. We're really sorry. The only way to get the data out is to use our API. And that's what they had said. They said. You have to connect to the API. You have to go get a list of every contact, and then you have to iterate over that list. And for each of the contacts, you have to look up their subscription status and then get it and save it. So of course, I'm lazy. I didn't want to do that. I expected that to be in the tool. Yeah, they're asking you to write their code for them. So what bothered me the most was that it was kind of pushed off as being a security issue. And they gave a couple rationales that were just BS, to be honest. The main thing is what their tool wasn't architected in a way to support that, I assume maybe by performance or for other reasons, and they try to play it off as something else. That's what bothered me the most. I've done enough code where I've built things in a way to kind of, I mean, even with CraftQuest, there's some stuff where I built it in a certain way to where it's kind of prevented me from doing some things I wanted to do because I built constraints into it. I totally get it. I'm not, there's no judgment there. It's just kind of that pushing it off as this thing it isn't. Like, just tell me that it's not technically possible with your tool to do it and you have to use the API. So I probably spent more time being frustrated about it than it actually took me to write 20 lines of Python to get. Oh, but that's still annoying, man. Totally like, you annoying. shouldn't have to write no Python script to do that. <laughs> You know? was, I mean, it wasn't that hard, but the reason really is bullshit. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry. Like the privacy thing is just silly because again, they're actually almost forcing you to do the wrong thing because you're exactly. going to be like, okay, if this is the only way I can get the list, I'm going to get the whole list. And then everyone just gets resubscribed. So it's the opposite of what they're talking about. Right. So let's the, say you have 20,000 people on the total list, but 10,000 of them have unsubscribed over the years. You have, you effectively have now just started emailing 10,000. And now Ryan, I'm not not denigrating you here in any way, okay? But them saying <laughs> that this is a, a technical limitation and there are performance bottlenecks involved in, in doing this, mm -hmm. I mean... I know you've got a robust thing going on with CraftQuest, but we're not talking about no million member list here where there should be major performance implications of doing something inefficient. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's 9,000 contacts is all it was. So yeah. It's not, I don't, it's not that much. And a portion of them are unsubscribed. So anyway, the frustrating part was if you do something, if you build something and there are technical limitations, share that while also sharing what the workaround is. And they did share the workaround, but they only share the workaround once I pushed back after them saying there's a security issue. It is absolutely a non-starter for me for them to say that you can't get the subscription status out. It's just, and they need it, to fix it. I mean, it should just be a left join somewhere, right? You would think <sighs> if everything is in their database. Yeah. In fairness to them, Ryan, probably 
given the nature of their tool, they are very likely probably used to dealing with marketing people that have no technical chops at all. And normally they probably can get away with saying this and no one's going to say anything about it, you know? So the end result was I did, I ran the final export this morning and it took whatever, probably almost 10,000 API queries or calls because you, you call, you have to call for each page of the listing and then you have to call for each actual contact. <laughs> I hope they charge you per API query and you get a huge bill. <laughs> no, no, no. Like I can, they have like an app store and I, you can build an app and that's how you actually might okay. craft quest the plugin i built for craft it was already there so i could just put in the same credentials in my python script and query everything so it was enjoyable to work with python again and then i kind of got i wrote a couple scripts to manipulate and massage the data that i got out because i really only pulled email address and stat subscription status and then i was able to then import that into my other tool now i'm not going to force you to out these people ryan but mm -hmm. i would say that just in general things like this I mean, I think companies should be mentioned. And the reason they should be mentioned is not to shame them. It's because people listening, you know, it's almost like reading a review of something. It helps to know the limitations of, of tools that people might potentially want to be using. Sure. Yeah. I will say that it's not intercom, but I will out intercom because I used them as the example. I said, I told them, I said, this feels like Intercom. And I said, and they're shady as heck. Because mm -hmm. the reason I call Intercom shady is because of their billing practices. Mm -hmm. They have very opaque billing and they bill you based on the number of people you contact in a month. Yep. Or you, so your bill can vary wildly and you don't have any insight. They never tell you, oh, you're at this threshold now. So suddenly you could get a bill that was three times what it was last month. Yep. It's not them. I will call them out because I think their billing practices Shady. I don't want to call them out because you're a developer. I'm a developer. We've made architecture mistakes and we've coded things with limitations or things that we think could be better. So I don't want to out them for that. It was just frustrating. And I think about if I wasn't able to do this myself to kind of say, okay, you just gave me two API endpoints and now I have to go figure it out. A lot of people couldn't do that. That's why people think we're magicians sometimes because you couldn't do that. Who thinks we're magicians? No, no, like non-technical people, like non-coders. You know, think that Is like, that true? I think so. Yeah, totally. Hmm. That might be a little self-glorification there. I'm not no, really sure no, that, no, you know. Not, I mean, I, I'm not saying that we are. I'm saying people think that because we can take this thing and, and make it work. You, don't, uh, you haven't worked with enough muggles, have you? I, <laughs> I think the non-technical people just think we're the people that they ask whenever they have any kind of computer-related question at all. You know, that. I mean, that's kind of my my take on it. Fair enough, fair enough. I don't know about magician. Maybe free consultant is probably the word that I well, would... Well, that's I your would... specialty, but... Um... So anyway, <sighs> okay, that's right. the rant. The, I think the, the moral of the story for me... There's two pieces. One is if a tool that you build has limitations, then just own it and say it and don't try to make it to be something else. And that goes for whether someone emails me and says, hey, I played a video at 2x speed and it didn't save my play status. It didn't save it as played. And I would say, oh no, that's because um, it's a security concern that people aren't overburdening the site with requests, you know, or something like that. When actually, you know what? It actually is broken and it's been broken and I need to fix it. That's, that's what you should do. The second part is, see all these things as opportunities. I kind of had an enjoyable couple hours yesterday writing the Python code and doing something a little bit different than than I do most of the week. No, you didn't. I was getting, I saw nothing but a stream of invectives coming over my, my no, messenger. Oh, that's, the, yeah. uh, you're talking about over text message? Yeah, it was like uh, Tourette's Pulling unleashed. Pulling it up. Let's see. <laughs> so Ryan, what is the male well, version of Karen? I might use the F word, maybe. Yeah, right. there you go. What is the male version of a Karen? It's a Kevin, right? No, a Chad. Oh, it's a Chad. No, that's different. That's a totally different thing. You're like out of touch with... 
No, no, no. Chad is the one, is the guy that all the, the ladies want to hook up with. No! So I think, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> I'm glad you got that off your chest. Thank that you. was about as spicy as a vegan taco. You know, not a, I was oh. hoping for a little, little more spice in there, you know? I'm such like a cool and collected person. All right, so I've, I've got a couple of things that I wanted to bring up. So first of all, have you heard of something called conventional commits? I have not. Is it... Um, and this does not have anything to do with a conventional marriage or anything I was going to say, like is it that. a marriage thing? No, it has I, nothing to I do Google with Can I Google it or am I not allowed to? Yep, so you can go to conventionalcommits.org. And this is something that actually my brother-in-law, Will Brower, pointed out to me. Wait, because, wait, 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 wait. That's your brother-in-law? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, that's my brother-in-law, man. I mean, it sucks for him, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> for some reason, I also thought you were the only child. You kind of strike me as an only child. No, no, no. He's my brother-in-law because we both married sisters. Oh. Different sisters. Yeah. Are you an only child? No, I got an older brother. Ah, uh, okay. All right, got it. That's how you're... you're okay, anyway. All right, so conventionalcommits.org is something that my brother-in-law, Will Brower, pointed out to me. He works for an agency, and he said, my team has started using this. You, know, you might want to check it out. And I, I went to go look at it, and I, my first thought when I looked at it was, that's where it's coming from, because I had seen... <laughs> People using this in a number of library maintainers, especially in the Node.js world, but elsewhere as well, mm -hmm. I'd seen them using this format. And I'm like, how did they all conspire and get together and decide to start using it? So all it is, is as in the name, it's a convention for doing your Git commits mm -hmm. in a way that you can do them to make them easily understandable and searchable based on the thing that you're working on and the type of thing that you're solving. And it's real easy to use. It actually comes from the Angular world, originally, I believe. Yeah. And what you do is you just prefix every commit with a type. So a type, for instance, would be fix colon, right? So it's a bug fix. Or it would be feet colon. It's a new feature that's been added. Or refactor colon. And it's basically a way of using the, a standardized convention in your commit messages to make them more useful when you're searching through or to see exactly what something is doing. The other part of it is that you can put an optional scope. So mm -hmm. you can do fix and then in parentheses, importer, for instance, to denote that the fix applies to the importer portion of the thing that you're working on. Mm -hmm. And then a colon and then just your regular commit message. And that's really all it is. So it's so just standardizing is... on a few different types that make sense for your project or for what you're using. And then an optional scope in parentheses of, of what that type applies to. So like I said, fix importer or feet importer for a new feature in the importer. And mm -hmm. then a colon and then your regular commit message. And that's all it is. It's a very, very simple thing. But it's something that I had seen people using and I'm like, well, how did they all get on the same page and start using this? And it makes sense that this thing has existed for some time. And it's something that I have started using just very recently in some of the development that I'm doing. And I'm just prefixing all of my commits with these various things. The cool part is that it lets you search for stuff in Git really easily. So if you are using, for instance, the scope to denote the thing that you worked on, so maybe the importer, you can just search for importer and you'll find all of the commits that relate to that. And also just by looking at it, you can see that this is a fix, this is a feature, et cetera, et cetera. The other cool part about it is, in, in addition to just providing a more standardized way to add information to the git commit message, the other cool thing is there are tools out there that you can use to automatically generate a change log from the git commit messages. Because now there's a standardized format, it can pull out all of those things 
things out and it can add them to the right heading. And, you know, whether it's a, a fix or a added feature or refactor or, or whatever it may be. I just thought it was cool. And I thought I would bring it up to see if you had seen it. And, and if not, just uh, to give you a, a pointer and maybe check it out. I haven't. Yeah, I have not seen this. It does fit with a lot of these kind of Git conventions. Yeah. And I know that this looks like these might be some anti, is it Git flow? Is that the, the I can't remember now. Git flow? No, I don't think it has anything, anything anti No, no, because there, there's a movement to kind of anti Git flow now. But anyway, but what are these? So, <laughs> okay. But the idea, so Git flow is nice because Git flow just works with normal Git. There's no, you're not using like some sort of third party dependency that will then break right. your repository. And this is kind of the same thing. It's just, exactly. it's just leveraging the Gitness of Git. And, it's agreeing on a vocabulary. It's right. you either, either you on your own or your team agreeing on a vocabulary that will help add a taxonomy or a searchable list of tags to your Git commits is essentially all it is. Yeah, and then if you're filtering Git right. log command, you exactly. can, it's way easier to do that. You can pass get a grep in or, or whatever the, I have a, a course or a bunch of stuff on a, all the Git stuff, but this, yeah, this, I had not heard of this. This is cool. I don't know if I'm too lazy to do this or not. I dig <laughs> so, it. So why, I guess, um, scope, to me, the, the branch name would imply scope, but yeah, I could see. That's why I was it saying It depends maybe. on how you work. So yeah. for instance, I'm, I, you know, I'm constantly doing small updates to my plugins. You know, someone just uh, earlier today said, hey, you know, this, this thing's broken or whatever. So I'll just jump in there and do it. And I do that right in the develop branch. I don't make a branch like fix small one line annoying bug, you know, I just oh, do really? it. Oh, really? Okay. I just do it right. Well, when I'm adding major new features, I will create a feature branch, but I'm not creating a branch for every new thing. It's just, it's so performative. Like it's just, it's ridiculous, at least in my opinion. That would be something that I would think if you're doing that, there's no way you're too lazy to add a little, a yeah, little bit like, of text in front of your commit, commit message, you know, but for a God's tool sake. like tower just makes it so easy. It does, man. But when you're, when I'm in there and I'm literally fixing one little bug that mm -hmm. involves a one line change, I'm not making a branch for that. I'm just, it's not. It's just not happening. You, get, you know, you don't get charged per branch, right? With Git, it's free. You know, there is something called time and there's something called wasting it. <laughs> oh, that, that doesn't take that long. Now, arguable, if this was something that I was working on a larger team mm -hmm. and things really were more involved, then okay, maybe I would consider doing it if it worked better with the, the well, team flow. If you were in a pull request workflow, you definitely would have to create a branch for, for every single change, for sure. Right, sure. And, and and that's fine, but I'm not making pull requests for myself, generally. It, it's not yeah, a common no, thing for me to do. I don't do that do. either. That seems like a whole lot of work. Well, I, some people do. I, I'm just saying, like, you know, you... The cool thing about all of this stuff is you can buy into as much or as little of it as you want. I'm just saying what, what works for me is when I'm working on major new features, yes, I make a feature branch. When I'm working on bug fixes, no, I don't. I mean, I'm just committing them right to develop. And in fact, I do that for a very specific reason, which is that when someone reports a bug, I show them how they can pull down the fix and test it before I even release it. So I just grab from dev develop, just pull it down and away you go. Yes, of course, that could be done with a, a the separate branch for everyone, but man, I mean, it just, it sounds way too performative for me. Like just going through the motions for. Well, yeah. God and also because why. of the, because someone can check out a specific commit, the branch isn't necessary either for, for that type of like targeted testing. 
of a change. Yeah. But also, like at least as far as I'm concerned, when I'm working on stuff in develop, um, first of all, I'm never committing something that is unfinished or unstable. Like it's just not something I do. If I was working on something big enough that that could potentially become a bottleneck, then yes, that goes into a branch somewhere. But it also then allows more people to potentially try this out before I release it as an official version too, by just having that one, this is the code in progress branch. But you know, like anything depends on the scale of what you're doing. In any event, I just wanted to bring up this conventional commits because I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, no, and it's great. I was just looking at why the, their section in the docs of why use conventional commits and you know, automatically generating change logs. You mentioned some of these. Determining semantic version bump, communicating with teammates about changes, triggering build and publish processes. Yeah, that's that's all. I mean, generating change logs this already seems kind of nice. And like I said, I had seen a number of library maintainers using this. So it's been in use for a really long time and presumably teams have found it useful to, to work on. I immediately didn't really have any objections to it and found it kind of uh, useful to do. So I'm using it for now. I'm trying it out and I'm seeing how I'm doing. I don't know if I'm going to do the automatic change log generation. I might, I might not. Mm. It depends. I have certain things that I do in there. Like I like to link to the, if it's solving a GitHub issue, I like to link that mm -hmm. GitHub issue. Although actually I'm putting that in the commit message too. So actually that would work automatically. So never mind. That's not an objection. I guess I'm just not really sure if I want to manually write the change log or if I want every commit to potentially generate a change log. Because there are times where I do a bunch of like really dumb small commits <laughs> and I don't want every single one of those to be listed there. You know what I mean? Yeah, okay, well, like well, I'll do a commit and then I'll be like, fix wrong variable name. You know, like I don't want that in the, in the change log. I might give it a shot and cheers to your brother-in-law, Will, for, for sharing this. Very cool. So I thought I would bring that up real quick. And so I had something else that mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about. And I actually got a number of things that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> but you had something else on your list that you wanted to talk about. Something about there's no magic. Like, what is that? Or is that just the everyone thinks we're magicians? Is that what you're talking about? These are still kind of some, some rough thoughts. But I've been watching, kind of got deep into watching. So there's this producer and songwriter and performer Jack Antonoff, and he's produced for Taylor Swift. He has a band called Bleachers. He's produced Lord, and I think a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, he did this series of videos where he actually broke down like how he created a song, one of his popular songs. Basically with the tools in his studio, I did this on my old legacy drum machine and I did this and I did this and you start to see it come together and it, it kind of dispels the idea that what he's doing is magic. You know, that it's just like this completed thing. You realize like, oh, if you do this with other things, like people that build furniture, people that paint or, or do whatever, you start to see that anyone that's really good at what they do has a process and they typically follow that process or use a set of tools or have some sort of framework that they use to create the whatever those, the things are that they create. And it really takes magic out of it. Yeah, there has to be inspiration. You have to be talented, obviously. You have to know how to use your tools, but it's not magical. And I think the reason I bring that up is because, first of all, it's one of the things that I try to do when I teach, which is to, is to show that there's a framework to how to think about modeling content for a site or writing code for a project, that it's not magical, but also that it, to me, it helps people be more motivated and less nervous about taking on something new. Because if you actually learn whatever it is, the thing that you want to create, the framework for creating that, then it's just down to the details of what you want to create. And it's not that Jack Antonoff has some special powers that allows him to do things. He has a selection of tools that he knows how to use really well. And he very methodically works with those tools and with layers builds up, in his case, a song. But it could be building up a piece of software. It could be building up a painting. 
It could be building up anything, but you have to know what your framework is. You have to be good at that. And then it's actually very then a very mundane process. If you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever spent time in a recording studio, Andrew, when someone's recording an album professionally, it's actually really boring. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's really, really boring. It's a, it's, it's a series of people doing a series of things that they're very good at, that they do day in and day out to produce predictable results. Yep. And, and that's kind of what I mean by there's no magic, which is I think we should think about this, especially when we see other people that have done really cool things in any sort of field or trade, know that there's always a process and architecture and structure underneath that allows them to build it up in a methodical working person way. They're not just sitting on their sofa and suddenly a, a perfectly produced song comes to them. They might have a root of an idea and then they methodically work on that and build it up piece by piece using the framework of creation that are producing a song that they know. So that's my whole philosophical rant. And it's just something I've been kind of thinking about a lot. So still kind of raw ideas around that, but that's... Well, and you could almost summarize that by saying that success is uh, 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration, right? <laughs> I think that's kind of with the same, you can jam that right into that same paradigm for sure. But in an analog to that for the kind of work that we do, I know there's a lot of, some people have pushed back against, you know, all of the front end tooling that is there. But I kind of consider that to some extent, the framework and the methodologies that allow you to build these really complicated, really amazing things that if you didn't have that, it actually would be really hard to do some of these amazing things. So I would definitely agree with that. I think that's a, a useful thing. And you, you reminded me of something like quick. Quick tangent, Ryan. Quick tangent. When you were talking about the recording studio stuff, my kids were telling me about the fact that one of their teachers, when they were coming back from Spain, got hauled off into a room with, you know, people with machine guns or something like that, you know, were oh. interrogating her. I've been in and, the interrogation room. And I was just like, well, all right, whatever. Something doesn't sound quite right. I, I don't really see Spain doing that very often. I was just like, you know, maybe she had something in there she wasn't supposed to bring back. And then it reminded me that I had something for the kids. I said, you know, you can get into trouble if you're bringing stuff back from a country that you're not supposed to bring. And I said, there's a, a movie that was made out of this called Midnight Express. Have you ever heard of that? It's an older movie. I have, yeah. I don't, okay. I don't know if I've ever watched it, though. So it's a good movie. It's a good movie to watch. And it's basically about a, a guy that he's trying to smuggle drugs, I believe, out of into or out of Turkey or something like that. Ends up getting caught and spending a whole bunch of time in prison. And there's a whole lot of stuff that goes along with it. And I, I thought I had this really cool moment where I was going to impress my kids. And I'm just like, you know what? There's this movie called Midnight Express. And the movie is based on a book. Mm -hmm. And I have that book for you signed by, by the guy who wrote it by wow. Billy Hayes. Wow. Billy Hayes is the one who wrote. So I, I went and, I, and my kids look at me and I know you're not going to believe this, but sometimes I have fun making things up and exaggerating things just to <laughs> kind of mess with the kids a little bit. I know that sounds totally out of character for me, but it is something that I do sometimes. And so they kind of looked at me with that look that I get that they're not sure if I'm telling the truth. Right. So I go and I, I pull the books off the bookshelf and I open them up and I say, look right here. It says to Tyler from Billy Hayes and then another one to Jack from nice. Billy Hayes. And they're like, how did you know this guy? Like, how did this happen? happen and i'm like oh well you know I, I used to play poker with billy hayes like the guy that uh, no kidding he, you know, really he, he signed it for me and everything yeah yeah for real that's awesome and they thought for a minute and this is where i thought i was impressing them and then my <laughs> my older son was just like wait a minute so you have a book signed by a criminal <laughs> And then he was just like, wait a minute. So you used to play poker with a criminal like at our house? Like what? I'm just like, oh, man, that didn't yeah. go over the way I was hoping it would. You know, mm -hmm. I do a lot of book pulling off of the shelf situations at home. And yeah. I can probably count the times on one hand where that ended up with anyone in my house being impressed <laughs> with me. 
I tried, that's cool man. you had the books. Did you have, have you forgotten about them that you bought those? Or, or that yeah, was one of those them? things where, you know, Midnight Express is not the kind of book that you're going to oh, give right, to right, a 12 year old right. to read. <laughs> not only is the material not necessarily, uh, yeah, I don't want to say it's going to be R rated, but it's going to have themes that maybe they don't really need to know about. And then also it's just not the kind of thing they'd be interested in anyway. So I just had them and I was just like, all right, well, you know, I'll give those to them whenever I think they might actually be interested in, in reading it. Yeah. Very cool. In, in any event. So one of the other things that I wanted to talk about is we have talked a bunch about Vite, that build mm -hmm. tool, speaking of frameworks that you can be using to, to build your stuff, which I, I think is super awesome. I know we talked about it here and we've done interviews and I've been using it for a number of things. I ran into a bug recently with Vite. And the issue is, well, let me take a step back. The way that Vite works is it sort of considers the directory that it lives in sort of like a public web server directory. So when you reference any file in Vite, it's just relative to the, the root where it is. And it literally can be thought of like the Nginx web directory or the Apache public HTML directory. That's kind of how it works from a dev server point of view. You spin it up and then you can just link to any file that is in its directory and it will just serve it up. And it does that for stuff that's in node modules, for stuff that's in your source or any of that kind of stuff. I think that's all well and wonderful, but I, I like to organize things a little bit different. I like to have my source directory outside of the build chain, I call mm -hmm. it, and I like to have put that somewhere else. And so what I had been using was a symlink from the root Vite directory right. to where I keep my source. And everything was working great, but then with there's some kind of a regression in V26 something, I don't even know what version it was in, where it would resolve the symlink and include that in the path to the file, which is really not what you want. You want the unresolved symlink, so it could just be like source JS app.ts or something. You don't want dot dot slash my cool folder slash source slash JS slash, you know what I mean? which is what it is resolving it to. So I did the right thing. I filed an issue. I create a minimum reproducible repository for them so they could work on it. But the Vite team is super busy. So I said to myself, self, why don't you go in there and try and fix this yourself? You know, like, why don't you go in there and yeah. see if you can't figure out what's going on and, and fix it and, and give them a PR. So I started down that road. The issue is that when you do an NPM install of Vite, you're not getting everything that's in the GitHub repo. You're getting just the build results is all that is in there. Right. So the problem with that is it makes it really, really difficult if you're trying to debug Vite itself because you are dealing with minified concatenated JavaScript that has function names like D and parameter names like A, B, and C, you know? It's just not an easy thing to try to debug. So I said, all right, let me try and figure out what I need to do in order to do this correctly. And it turns out that Vite is using something called PNPM, which is a an alternative package manager, which is an alternative package manager to NPM, essentially. And it, it has some, what you would expect in uh, features, it's faster, it's more efficient. It supports mono repos really well, which is I think one of the reasons why the Vite team is using it. Mm -hmm. And monorepos, for anyone who doesn't know, they're basically just a number of packages that can be pulled in separately, but exist in one repository, right? So it's just one big kind of thing where they go. And in order to do this locally, what you have to do is you, you git clone down Vite, and then there are a few steps that you have to follow in order to get it up and running. You have to do some stuff with npm install, and then link, and then you, there's a whole bunch of stuff. And me being the masochist that I am, <laughs> I said, you know 
what? I'm gonna build a Dockerized way of doing Vite development in terms of development on Vite itself. So that's one of the things that uh, has been occupying me in recent times, Ryan, is that I've been spending some time trying to build this thing and I'm trying to build it from the point of view of it's not just me. I wanna make something that is super easy that if people want to work on Vite and contribute to it or whatever, they can just start this debug Docker container up and everything will be set up and, and ready to go for them working on it. That's How crazy cool. am I to be doing this, Ryan? What do you think? You're slightly crazy. Is this the yeah. same? Is this, this isn't the project that you're trying to, to lure me into working on, is it? <laughs> no, that would be make too much sense that you know, I would have only one <laughs> side know. project that pays me nothing. Yeah, <laughs> that would make too much sense. Okay. But, but that's something that I'm hoping to, to wrap up relatively soon because I think uh, I, I talked with Matt Gray a little bit because there, there are a couple of sticky things in terms of what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I want to make it as insulated as possible that people won't have to know anything about anything and it, it will just magically work. And there are a couple of additional steps that I wasn't quite sure the right way to do them are, but I think I got that ironed out. And uh, hopefully I'm going to have that done soon. And then finally, speaking of meta work, finally, I can then move on to actually fixing the thing that I wanted to help try to fix. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm hoping that they fixed it before I have or not at this point. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's all about the journey. It is quite a journey. Yeah. Uh, but I think that this could be useful. Vite is something that long term, I probably am going to be interested in doing stuff with. So if I have this set up, I think that will actually be pretty good in terms of me being able to plumb into the internals or to write plugins for it. I've already written a couple of Vite plugins and then also just occasionally find and fix bugs. Maybe at some point even contribute an additional feature to. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the only way really to be a contributor, right, is to get the, the local development environment set up and working. And then... Yeah, and to be clear, they do have a contributing guide that tells you the steps that you need to do to get it up and working. But I have a, a setup where I don't install any of this stuff locally. I don't have Node installed locally. I don't have Composer installed locally, none of it. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'm like, I'm not going to install Node locally just to do this. So I decided that I'm going to Dockerize it so I could do it kind of my way. I Very do have an cool. article coming on that, by the way, Ryan, of how you can, and this is really timely with people getting their shiny new M1 MacBook Pros or yeah. MacBook. Including uh, yourself, you know, whatever, right? Where you, you can just never install Brew. You don't need to install Brew for anything at all. You don't have to install anything on your machine locally. And you can just use the, the Docker life and away you go. That sounds appealing to me. You don't have to worry about every time you get a new machine, you have to rebuild your environment over and over again. Yeah. And the basic idea is you can, you set up aliases. So when I type composer install, mm -hmm. what it actually does is it spins up a container that has composer in it, does all of the work inside the container, and then the results are dumped in the file system and it's done. So it's and slower. It's not. No. I mean, because what happens is when once you've done it once, it caches the Docker image and it is shockingly quick to spin it up and do it. You would be very surprised. Cool. I mean, I know from working with the Docker setup that you have for the craft boilerplate is that it is nice. Like if you try to run like one of the make commands that you have, it will spin up the containers if they're not already there. And yeah, once they're running. Yeah, it, and it's kind of like that. The The difference is that for these, these kind of one-off commands, mm -hmm. it's not doing it. So in my Docker setup, the lengthy part of that spinning up is actually that it does a composer install and an NPM install every time you spin it up. And it's doing that intentionally just to make sure that everyone keeps their versions in sync when I'm working on Teams. But the actual overhead of spinning up the container 
is is very low. Yeah, so it, cool. it works really nicely. And I just need to find time to, to finish that article, you know? I'm running out of time. Uh, I think you have all the time in the world. <laughs> I wish. Well, speaking of all the time in the world and speaking of go bags, oh, which is gosh. something that you might want to grab if you're going to go on an, an adventure. Yeah. I want to drag you on an adventure, Ryan, where okay. we work on something that is out of our comfort zone and there is no money, mm-hmm. there's no fame, mm-hmm. and there is no glory. What do you think? Are you trying to say I'm, that's what I'm motivated by? Are those the three things? Fame, money, uh, I mean, those are, those are reasonably motivating factors for lots of people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let, let's go. I, I can prove it, actually, Ryan. I mean, you're kind of disparaging me and saying I'm shallow, but I can prove it. So would you do <laughs> all of the work that you do on CraftQuest for free? Uh, yeah, I would. I totally would. Liar. Liar. I'm staring right into his eyes, everybody. <laughs> he is lying I, so hard. Why do you say I'm lying, though? I'm it's, not saying you don't enjoy it. There yeah. are jobs that people do that they very much enjoy doing. However, if they were not paid to do them, a lot of people wouldn't do them. They would find something else to do because, not because they're shallow, because you need a certain amount of money to exist. Well, you know, yeah. Just, that's just life. That's true. I feel like there's a little bit more nuance to it than that. So what's your, what's the adventure? Are we going like bike packing across the US? Are we going to go on like some sort of long trail run and try to get the FKT? What are we doing? Well, I'm going to give you the pitch real quick. I'm, I'm not going speed walking with you because I think it's a silly sport. So I'm I not going to do that. Walk, but thank you. Go ahead. Well, you're, you're a speed walking champion. But anyway, that's <laughs> irrelevant to what we're talking about here. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to build a browser extension. Uh-huh. It's going to start as a Chrome extension, but it's going to be built in such a way that there will be common code mm-hmm. and that we can also make it Safari and Firefox and whatever other browsers that we decide to support. So it's going to be a extension and it's going to be Twig debug tools is what it's going to ah. be. And here's the way it's going to work. It's going to do a couple of things for you. So one is it's going to give you introspection. So you view your developer tools and I'm just going to use Chrome. You view your developer tools in Chrome. And just like with the view developer tools, there will be a Twig tab sitting there. You click mm-hmm. on it and you will see all of the blocks that were rendered on the page. You will see all of the includes that mm-hmm. were on the page. And you also will see the entire context. Context mm. in Twig parlance is all of the variables that were used on the page. So you will have introspection. So your template is not going to be this black box where you don't know what variables exist in it and what you can be doing with it. You're actually going to see all of the variables that are in there and you'll be able to drill down and inspect them. So you'll be able to see on this page, you know, here's my entry and here's the data that's in here and here's the index loop variable and and all of the the craft and plugin injected stuff will be there as well. Just like it is in a lot of other developer tools for other frameworks where you're actually able to introspect, you know, what is actually going on. Because I think a lot of people, especially when you first start out, you're starting out with Twig and you write stuff over here in an editor and you have no idea what exists on the other end. (laughs) You have no idea what variables are available to you to be working with or anything like that. And then at some point you discover the percent DD or the dump command Mm. and you start dumping variables to to Mm. see what's in them and that you know i mean it works but it's kind of a lame experience right yeah and then maybe it's somewhere down the line you discover the special variable underscore context (laughs) and you do a percent dd context or or dump the context so you can see every variable that's in there but i feel like you don't get there for a very long time i think there are lots of people that work with twig every day that have no idea that you can do that to see the variables that are in there a very narrowly scoped flashlight and you just kind of yeah Exactly. You have no introspection. That's what it is, right? The other part of the equation that I would want it to be able to do is you should be able to click on any block. Mm Mm-hmm. 
in the inspector and it will highlight that block on the page. Right? Okay. So we'll show you, this is all of the stuff that came from the block content or, or whatever. And also you will be able to hover over these blocks if the developer tools are open. You'll be able to hover over the actual HTML that's in your web page, and it will highlight what block that all comes from, as well as having some performance metrics showing how long it took for that block to render and a, a bunch of other stuff that would be really useful. And this is something that my template comments plugin sort of does. Yeah, it adds comments. Yeah, it adds comments to the actual source code so you can view the source and you can see, okay, everything bracketed in here came from this block, but it's not as fun to work with. It's not as nice to work with as being able to just hover over something on the page and see where it comes from. And I think that this is something that is really useful. I, I've had it happen both on my own projects, but more when I'm taking over a project from somebody else and there'll be an error somewhere and you'll be like, I have no idea where the HTML that is rendering this thing that is wrong is coming from. And you have to plumb down through all their templates, especially with content builders to, to find out where all this stuff is. So that's my pitch is that Twig is this thing that there are no developer tools for it whatsoever. And I think the having the introspection of seeing the context, being able to look through the variables, and then also seeing the blocks, getting some performance timings on them. I think all of these things would be useful. And I want to do it in such a way that it probably will be using the protocol that VS Code uses for its language servers. It's going to have to use some kind of method for communicating between the extension and the front end to get mm -hmm. the context and information. I figure it might as well be done using a standard. Why reinvent my own standard to do something that other tools are already doing? And that would mean that it would be written to a standard so that if someone wanted to use this Chrome extension with Symfony or with Drupal or with anything that uses Twig, there would be a standard that they could write against so that they could do their CMS or backend specific part of it and it would all work with the front end. What do you think? I think that sounds really interesting and, and you're, but I'm, I'm down for sure. You also said maybe like a browser extension for Safari, things like that as well. I mean, I the basic I idea- I have written a Safari extension. I've definitely done Chrome. Yeah, so I have not written a Chrome extension or a Safari extension as far as I know. I don't think I have. Are Safari extensions Swift? I actually don't know. No, they're not. I mean, they and all of this well? stuff is very, very similar. That's the nice thing about it is that the way to do it, the way to hook into all the browsers is a little bit different. Yeah. But at some point you can have a whole lot of common core code. Like for instance, the, the WebSocket that would be opened for the language server would be mm -hmm. something that would work in all of them. And the HTML that you use to, because in the developer tools, the stuff that's displayed down there, it's just HTML. Right. And you can include any arbitrary JavaScript or CSS that you want in there. And it will just renders it as an HTML page. So all, there's a whole lot of stuff that is really common. And I've looked at some other developer tools and some other extensions. And what they do is they just separate it out by browser and then they have a common directory and the bulk of the, the work goes into that. And then you just have whatever it needs to be browser specific to hook into their developer tools. That sounds like fun. It sounds like it's in a lot of areas that I haven't worked in. So that's, that's appealing. That's the point, right? I mean, that's really the point is that it would be something that is, you know, it's not entirely out of our comfort zone because it's all just JavaScript, HTML, CSS, but it definitely is doing doing things in a way that we're probably not really doing every day. And uh, I don't know, I, I think it sounds fun. And, and more importantly, I think it also sounds pretty useful. I think so. I, and I've had a, a few browser extension ideas. So it'd be, this is a good, much simpler than this. So this is a good, a good place to be. I'm in. So maybe we can update everyone in the next standup or a future standup about how it's going. I'm not going to commit to that. <laughs> <laughs> I am. 
But I, I think it's a cool idea, and I think it might be fun to do. Now Now it's a matter of either finding the time or, if someone wants to, finding the funding, right? Ooh. I don't think that's going to happen. Like, I, yeah. I think that's a, a pretty much a 0.0% chance of happening. Well, we could spin up the GitHub repository, and, and then once we have something that works, you can always have GitHub sponsors. I guess. Or I we could start, like, a YouTube channel, tell jokes, and have Patreon account. Well, you know, this is, this is basically just therapy. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm down. So you get in touch with my people and we'll get something on the calendar. Yeah. I don't have any timetable for it. It's something that I've been thinking about. Yeah. And it's probably because it is something that interests me, it, it probably is going to be something that I work on and not just like this idea that is floating out there. But I do have a ton of other things that I'm working on too. So no ETA. But I thought it sounds cool and I wanted to talk it through with you and see if you had any interest too. I'm interested. Count me in. All right. You heard it. We got commitment from Ryan. I think Ryan is just interested in doing this because he would like to use his go bag. This is something he can just grab and go on an adventure. So I think he's very excited about that. But that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe, tell a friend, drop us a review. We really would appreciate it, especially those five-star reviews on iTunes. Those are really big for discovery. For the devmode.fm podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. And I'm Ryan Iron. Yeah, you no, I want to. I want to do this. I don't get to do. I feel like I work on my own stuff so much, and it feels selfish. Yeah. And I did. I did discuss this with Ben Croker too to see if he would be oh. interested, and he <laughs> he said that it was getting his um, his gears turning in terms of this is something that could be extended to do sprig. Yeah. And our our idea for that was that it would actually show you the diff of stuff that is coming in from sprig Mm -hmm. so as it comes in it would like fade in you know it would show like a background color and then you'd be able to see what request pulled this in from sprig and you'd be able to see the whole diff of of the page and all sorts of really cool stuff so so the only the the extension real quick i have to hop on a call the extension that i was have been thinking about building it's been on my list is if you're on um should I stop recording? Is this uh, proprietary information? No, I mean, you won't put it in there. But if you're on like the <laughs> craft docs, that it gives you links to relevant tutorials elsewhere. And then if you're on, yeah, that's wait a, minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're writing a Chrome extension that lets you hijack crafts docs and, and feed them into your videos. Is this what it's like? No, 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 no. Like marketing clickjacking extension? No, you 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 install the extension and it, it just gives you the helper help information. So if you're on the docs and you, you're like, oh, like, like I want to actually see someone actually implementing this or see someone write about this, then it gives you the the links off to like other tutorials. Right. Actually, so links directly to craftquest.io. I got it. All right, we we or got where NY you're going studio with. Studio, if if you want to pay me per right, per right, right.